Hello and welcome to the Eco Chamber, a podcast on environmental journalism brought to you by the investigative team of reporters at Ends Report. I'm Tess Colley. And I'm Shasha Aidy. We will be your co-hosts today, standing in for James Ajapong Parsons, taking you through the twists and turns of the latest environmental news. In this week's episode, we'll be covering the potential ramifications of the government's latest nutrient neutrality update, how thousands of hares and hundreds of beavers have been cold in Scotland over the past four years, and why it's all right for our old environmental secretary, George Eustace, to set up an environmental consultancy advising agribusiness. For our deep dive, while it's been a wet summer, we'll be talking drought and unpacking sensitive government documents that showed how close 160,000 people came to running out of water last year. We'll also delve into the murky water quality data that's been raising some eyebrows. So, without further ado, let's enter the Eco Chamber. For our first story, the Housing Secretary Michael Gove has made a big announcement this week, effectively throwing out the rulebook on nutrient neutrality policy for businesses and local authorities. But what does it mean? Tess, can you bring us up to speed? I will try. So, after weeks of anonymous briefings to newspapers, which anyone who's been listening to the Eco Chamber podcast will have heard about, uh, that it's considering plans to override water pollution rules, known as nutrient neutrality. Well, this week, the government has confirmed that it has tabled an amendment to the Leveling Up and Regeneration Bill to to actually do that. It's, it's the government's doing what it what it seemed to suggest it was going to do. It was absolutely shocking. That's um, nice. <laughs> no, no. Uh, but it's it's quite a you know a big confirmation that you know the many businesses have been waiting to to get some certainty on. Just to cycle it back, um, for those that don't know a lot about nutrient neutrality, what is it, and and why is Gove so adamant about updating this framework? So nutrient neutrality is an environmental measure taken by Natural England to reduce the nutrient load in our protected waterways from from new development. Uh, the rules come from old for the for the UK post-Brexit EU case law, uh, which require that no new developments which add to nitrate and phosphate levels in protected waterways are given planning permission because those nitrates and phosphates can uh, dam- basically damage the ecosystems within those habitats. But it's been these rules have been condemned by developers as a major hold up to new homes being built. Um, and although you know Natural England began informing you know the relevant local authorities about this in 2019, and then there's been disquiet from the development sector and some local authorities ever since. But you know some solutions were starting to come forward. But you may you know recently housing's become a big hot political potato uh, with Labour set to make it a big, you know, big election issue. And by making this change to nutrient neutrality rules, scrapping the rule, essentially, uh, the government says it will be able to unlock 100,000 homes by 2030. Um, So that's, that's what it means. And that's why it's important. So let's go into the details then. Like, what do we know about these announcements? So the exact wording of this amendment has not actually been published yet. So the actual crucial crunch details aren't something that you know what we have at the moment. But what the government has said is that once the nutrient neutrality requirement is removed, it will allow Natural England, it says, greater freedom to develop catchment-specific solutions to the causes of nutrient pollution in partnership with each community supported by government and private investment. Um, so first thing I'll say, the government's announcement's been written very much as if it's it's happening and it's going to happen. And obviously they they plan for it to happen. Uh, but this is an amendment they're tabling to 
a bill which is already quite late in the in the parliamentary stage, that amendment needs to kind of go through the House of Lords and, you know, quite I can bet you there are going to be peers in there who are going to be kind of fighting against it. So we'll see what happens. And they have they've got quite a short time frame to get it through, but we'll we will, like I said, have to see what happens there. Secondly, I mean it's hard to say without those details, but someone I spoke to this morning who has a business revolving around helping developers meet neutral neutrality requirements through nature-based solutions said that they reckon kind of this signals that the government is aiming to move away from a system where the onus is on the private market and private business to find ways not to pollute according to the law and towards one where environmental requirements are met through a strategic kind of top level approach varying from place to place. So the government has said it's going to it's going to put more money into natural as nutrient mitigation scheme. It's talked about various other uh, measures it, it's going to take or has actually already announced it's going to do and it's kind of wrapped them up as being new and they're not really. But it's not saying that this isn't a problem. It acknowledges it's a problem because it's in law that you know nutrient neutrality is a thing that needs to be managed and kind of seen to. It's just saying it's going to do it in a different way. So there's lots of unknowns still, um, but that's that's what we know. It's definitely one of those watch this space kind of thing. Absolutely. Isn't it? it has been for a few months now and it will be for another few, I think. And, and what's sort of our, our line from the government on this? Well, for the government, this has you know, been used as proof of how seriously they're, they're taking the housing crisis. Um, but Gove, Gove said in his statement alongside the announcement today that the government would be working with the environmental agencies. Um, so that's that's what they're saying. Why we wait to hear more from our housing secretary, Mr. Michael Gove? We're on to our second story this week, and we're in Scotland. New data has been published this month by the wildlife regulator Nature Scott, um, which has brought to life some rather revealing figures when it comes to the the legal killings of protected species, including the culling of thousands of hares and hundreds of beavers. Shosha, can you run us through some of these numbers? I can. Um, the most revealing figures showed that more than 5,200 brown and mountain hares were reportedly killed under licence um, since 2019. Although during this time, landowners were actually permitted by Nature Scott to kill more than 11,500 um, hares. That is the figure that we have. Mm. And from what I know, both mountain and brown hares are protected by law under the Wildlife and Countryside Act. So how how does it work that a legally protected species uh, can be lawfully killed? As per the Act, um, it is an offence to intentionally kill or recklessly kill, injure or take mountain hares at any time of the year. And that's the same for brown hares during the closed hunting season, which is between February and September. Mm. But regulators have the power to issue specific licences um, to landowners and tenants that allow for species control. Um, so, for example, if a protected animal like the hare is found to be seriously damaging crops, timber or having a detrimental impact on the habitats around them, then this license can be granted. I mean, I, I grew up in Cornwall, which is you know quite rural, has quite a big farming community. So I understand the arguments both for and against this kind of culling. Mm. Um, but the other element to this is there's some issues with the the transparency of reporting that have been raised. So it's up to the license holder to report back how many um, animals they've culled, um, which brings up a question as to whether we have the right numbers, whether it's less or more. 
um, and according to the People's Trust for Endangered Species, some areas in Scotland actually have seen mountain hare declines for of more than 90% or near extinctions. So you think, mm. is it fair to be granting these licenses if it could be, you know, driving species to the brink? Yeah, I mean, I suppose, we, yeah, I haven't looked at the data myself, so I don't know where the, which areas they're declining or which they're not. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting story. And the whole story around uh, which animals get cold and which don't, because um, beavers were also on the kill list data, right? Yes, they were. I, a total of 352 beavers were killed um, under license since 2019. Although the numbers for 2023 on that have yet to be released, actually. Mm. And were there any other interesting trends in the data? Um, yes. So carrion crows, goose landers and pink-footed geese showed an increase in kill numbers reported in the data. Although there has been a general reduction in the numbers of different types of gull reported to have been killed over the four-year period. Um, so, you know, there's lots to be gleaned from this data. Mm. Oh, yeah. It's, it's always, when I, I remember when I first started reporting on this stuff, I found it, found it shocking that, you know, kind of crows would be killed or gulls. Um, even sometimes, you know, on RSPB estates, like those kind of animals sometimes have to be managed because they negatively impact ecosystems, not always just about damage to crops. Like there's, it's a, it's a delicate balance, um, kind of managing nature, but there, there's all sorts of uh, political questions around it about who gets to decide, I suppose, which animals are problem animals and when they are. Definitely. So what has Nature Scott said about the data? Um, they said it's all about boosting transparency. Um, in a statement accompanying the data release, they said, we're committed to making as much of our data as accessible as possible to all those who have an interest in our licensing function, including members of the public, other organisations and agencies. Um, and they said that over the next months, they'll be working to make more of this data available. You know, whilst it might seem like a sorry state of affairs for some environmentalists, the point of transparency is really key as it shines a light on some very important information. Um, and in some ways, it's a similar step to the move Natural England is already taking um, when it comes to kill licenses and data transparency. Another interesting one. So we're on to our final story of the week, and it's all to do with the former Environment Secretary, George Eustace, and his desire to set up an environmental consultancy. Do you want to walk us through this one? Yes. So George Eustace, former Environment Secretary under Boris Johnson, um, is spreading his wings into the private sector. Um, he's, you know, it's emerged he's seeking to set up uh, an independent consultancy to work with clients in the agri-tech, agri-food, waste management and waste and water sectors. We know this because under the government's business appointments rules for former ministers, any any ministers must seek advice from um, the ACOBA committee. So that's the advisory committee on business appointments before they take on any private sector work relating to um, you know, areas that they previously held sway over in government within two years that the rules apply. And so obviously for George Eustace, having held the DEFRA secretary position, anything in the kind of uh, agri-tech, agri-food, um, wastewater sector, that's that's bang on, bang on brief. Uh, so yes, he's, he's, that's what he's doing. That's really interesting. He must have a lot of knowledge um, in that area that, you know, is useful for, uh, for a consultancy. So he has been given the green light. Yes, so he's been given the green light, but there are some some caveats from the committee. So 
um, well, he's been given approval to set up the consultancy, but the committee was very clear in its letter uh, that they published that he can't actually take on any clients yet without seeking further advice. So, you know, he's got he's got a bit to go. Um, but in particular, they can't, they've said that he can't be going giving advice on matters where he made decisions or had access to sensitive information in office. And that those sorts of, if he wants to do that, that's going to, you know, require close scrutiny from the committee. The committee also noted that, you know, I guess in his application to them that he said that he explicitly would not take on work which involves making direct representations on behalf of clients in respect of DEFRA ministers, officials, agency or DEFRA's arm's length bodies. Um, so he's, he's saying I'm not going to use my position to, to gain <laughs> an unfair advantage in the sector. Um, yeah. Well, it, it's actually quite a lot of caveats. It's always like I, I wonder how he's going to... Um get around that but yes mm. so why have they you know if he's got all these contacts and insider info why have they given him the go-ahead is it a go-ahead yeah cases? well it, they the, it is they've said that first of all it's been 11 almost 11 months since Eustace was in government and in that time there have been multiple changes in government as we're all aware including two new prime ministers and three DEFRA secretaries so there has been a lot of change um, then they also said that uh, the Acoba uh, committee that, you know, the matters he was involved with have largely been altered by his successors or relate to decisions and policies that are already in the public domain. So they're saying basically everything you did is now redundant or it's or it's already happened or it's already happened and it's, it's kind of a done deal. Um, I think something that really worked in his favour was that they considered it significant that he had a prior career in the agri kind of food food industry before his time in government. So he's is I guess it's a return to what he already knew. Um but yeah that'll be that'll be one to watch. So Eustace's consultancy coming to an agri-environmental business suit. It's time now for the Eco Chamber moment of the week. A period to reflect on something fun, quirky, cool, gross or weird. Tess, what was your moment of the week? Mine is about pigs. My moment is that um, so some pigs have been released on Cornish moorland to help the wildlife thrive. And um, I just sort of love the idea of these pigs running around kind of Cornish moors. Uh, they've been released <laughs> part of a re rewilding trial, I should add. And it's the, the idea is they will control plants like bracken and help other other wildlife to, to flourish. Um, and it's been done by the, the Cornwall Wildlife Trust, um, kind of near, near Bodmin. Um, I think it's interesting as well, cause you know, obviously animals and livestock get such a bad, <laughs> bad kind of press. Yeah. Like um, pigs and cows and you just think yeah, of them she, as being sort of farming animals rather yeah. than. Well, they, well, they are. And I mean, sheep get the worst you know, reputation, don't they? But I think, you know, and I know the Wildlife Trust have talked about this quite a lot that this kind of low intensity grazing is actually can be quite important for certain habitats to to do well because they were kind of yeah like it says like it breaks up patches of vegetation so other types of of uh, plants or, or what have you can can grow there and you get more diversity more biodiversity so that's my moment of the week pigs having a good moment i love it um i've got one and a half moments of mm, the week today. <laughs> I hope so. Um, James isn't here, so you know yeah, we're gonna it's bend the rules. Um, firstly, a quick update on the Loch Ness monster. 
um, last week, actually, in the last episode of the podcast, I mentioned that over the weekend there was this like huge search carried out to try and discover the Loch Ness Monster, like the most high-tech one. Um, but they sadly didn't find anything. Um, sadly or luckily, you know, depending on your perspective. Um, <laughs> but it did sound like a lot of fun. And apparently you can stream it, which also sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> My favorite newsline about it was in the NBC uh, where someone said they heard some fantastic, bizarre sounds, but unfortunately the recording equipment hadn't been plugged in. <laughs> so that's a shame. Um, my other moment of the week is this great story that was reported on by The Guardian, um, which is that scientists have solved this mystery of why there's this octopus garden, they've called it, where it's basically tens and thousands of these pearl octopuses mm. gathered at the foothills of this giant underwater mountain um, two miles down from the coast of California. I just think that sounds like the beginning of like a children's <laughs> storybook or something. Um but yeah, it's because it seems there's like warm water seeping up through the seabed. So it's nice and toasty so they can speed up the hatching of their eggs. Oh. But I really recommend going and Googling that one because there's some gorgeous little photos. Do love it. Sounds great. I definitely will be Googling that. So that wraps up our big green news section. Now it's time for our deep dive where Shosha and I will be taking a plunge into some huge water stories that came out in the last week, including sensitive documents that revealed how dire the drought situation really was in 2022 and the fact that Southern Water nearly ran out of legal means to supply 160,000 people's water last year. We'll also be looking at how newly released figures on the state of our water bodies have caused both concern and a considerable amount of confusion. Shosha, that's lots that's gone on. Let's tackle the most shocking story, in my view, first. Water scarcity last summer. What happened? It really is a shocker. Um, three internal Environment Agency briefing documents, which were unearthed by Greenpeace investigative team. Unearthed. Mm, very good name. Yeah. Um, which was seen by ENDS, have revealed that last summer parts of England were dangerously close to running out of water. Um, in a September 14th briefing to Sir James Bevan, who was chief executive at the time, the EA said it was seeing delays in drought permit applications, particularly for exceptionally low reservoirs in southwest water, Yorkshire water, and Seven Trents water zoned. Um, this is significant because, you know, drought permits can be used in emergency situations to vary a water abstraction license. So, you know, more water, for example, could be taken from a river if needed to supply mm. more drinking water. Right. Um, it was also one that some major reservoirs were approaching a state of dead storage. Um, one of these being Southwest Water's largest strategic reservoir, Colliford, which at the time was at 29% capacity. Wow. So dead, sorry, dead storage. It sounds like the thing I don't want to be in. What <laughs> What does it mean? <laughs> I know. I hadn't heard this term before, but it's basically when the water level is so low that it can't be drawn out. And that's either for logistical reasons, such as low water pressure, for example, but also sometimes because it's untreatable at that point, as it's really concentrated with silt or, you know, sediment mm. at the bottom of the reservoir. Right. Okay. And yeah, the revelation I found most shocking amongst the documents was actually a briefing on a drought permit Southern Water applied for, for the river test in July, uh, which basically stated the EA was not going to approve um, its drought permit and that as 
160,000 people rely on this, Southern Water might end up with no legal means of maintaining supplies if the dry weather persisted and faced serious deficiency of supplies in the immediate future. That's a quote. Yeah, wow. Yes. The EA were particularly worried about abstraction from the river test due to the impact this would have on salmon in the neighbouring river Itchen, which is a chalk stream. And, you know, chalk streams, these are some of the rarest aquatic habitats in the world. Yeah. So um, what, what happened in the end? Well, in November, luckily, Southern Water actually withdrew its drought application um, before the EA could make a decision. And that was thankfully because there was increased rainfall, yeah. uh, which is, you know, pretty lucky. You can't <laughs> plan the weather. That is just luck. Yeah. Um, and I think there really is a cause for concern if we see dry weather return next year. Yeah. So if this year had been a really hot summer like last year was, if we'd had that again, what situation would we have got ourselves into? So I think it would have been that um, those 160,000 people that rely on that river, you know, you'd either have to go ahead and abstract more um, in order to continue supply and that would come at a cost to the environment or, you know, you end up flying in water or, you know, mm. portable water supplies. So it would have, it's it's something that's not only a risk this summer, um, but it's also a risk every summer until long-term solutions are constructed. Right, like, you know, like what? Well, Southern Water told us that they are relying on constructing a new reservoir, a haven thicket, um, new pipelines to move water about the region, a new bulk supply agreement with Portsmouth Water and a large-scale adoption of water recycling. Okay, and those are all things that take a bit of time and they investment, are. aren't they? They are. So were was it just Southern? Like, Were other water companies in this sort of situation? There was another um, example that, that was raised in the briefings. Um, so legal concerns were raised about plans from Yorkshire Water to transfer raw water from one of its reservoirs overland into another in the Worth Valley. Mm. So at the time, its Worth Valley reservoirs were tracking at 27% full, um, which was below the regional average of 41% at the time. The problem was that this would then go through areas which were in the highly designated South Pennine Moors Special Area of Conservation, Special Protection Area, and site of special scientific interest. So like, you mm. know, as protectors as it gets, really. Um, the full Monty. The full Monty. Uh, the EA noted it had concluded the proposal would potentially result in a breach of the conditions within the abstraction licence. But Yorkshire Water actually did have to go through with this. Um, so between September and October, they flew the pipes over with helicopters uh, to transport and lay the pipes uh, to try and mitigate the impact on the moors. And they told us, as a responsible landowner, they completely understand sensitivity of the area and they consulted people. So that one actually did happen. Wow. Okay. So what what did what the kind of what did the experts think? What do environmental experts make of it all? Um, James Overington, who we speak to quite a lot at the end support, he's a water policy officer at the conservation charity Wildfish. He described the finding as terrifying mm. um, and told ENDS they underline how fortunate we were not to experience the same prolonged dry conditions this year. Um, continuing to quote, last summer's heat wave should be considered a final warning. If we experience the same conditions this year, our water environments 
would have been devastated. Well, that's pretty pretty strong, isn't it? I mean, it reminds me this whole story just it was just a couple of weeks ago that we, you know, ENS report reported on these leaked letters from uh, the Environment Agency to water companies, where it, you know, this basically was saying the Secretary of State was urging them to rethink uh, their water resource management plans in a way that might find some savings that won't impact customers. Um, and one of these suggested scenarios was that they were meant to be considering was how water companies could use off what's basic low climate change scenario beyond 2030 and how you know how would that change your supply demand balance and that was interesting because this scenario seems much lower levels of warming um, than currently predicted by like international climate bodies um so it's just it's shocking to me we've got this story of the kind of water companies being urged to, you know, maybe can you consider maybe if things aren't that bad on climate change, maybe things won't get that hot. Could you change your plans and maybe that would make things a bit cheaper down the line? Um, we've got that story. And then a week later, we have almost 160,000 people might have like not not had the kind of water supplies properly yeah. last summer. And this is why I don't understand when like, you know, these documents had to be uncovered. I think people will be much more willing to reduce their water consumption if they themselves are made aware of the full situation. Mm. And currently that that isn't the case. And that's where, you know, we're raising this concern of like a lack of transparency. Mm, yeah, it's, it's a fascinating story. So what, and what have water companies in the EA said when you've approached them about it? So Water UK spokesperson, um, which represents the industry, said last year's record-breaking temperatures and the ongoing droughts across Europe are a reminder that investment in water resources must be a priority. Um, and an environment agency spokesperson said, you know, last year's summer was the hottest on record. They worked to provide timely advice to government, ensure water companies were implementing their drought plans and helping farmers to manage resources. Hmm. Okay, so it's all fine, basically. We're doing stuff. Yeah, thumbs up. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I should say when that story I just mentioned broke about kind of water companies being urged to rethink water resource management plans, the Water UK weren't happy about it at all. And like, from what I understand, water companies, you know, aren't best pleased about being asked to rethink plans, certainly quite last minute because these business plans are due in, in October. Um you know, I suppose it's in it's in it's in everyone's interest to have water supplies work, and it's just I suppose this is the interesting political point of who's going to pay and when, and mm. we see that again and again on environmental stories. Um, so when it comes to health for our protected rivers, there's been another important story, hasn't there, Shosha? What's been going on here? Yes, it's been a very busy time for water policy news, um, despite the parliamentary recess. Earlier this month, a partial data set was published by the Environment Agency on the state of water bodies across catchments in England, and that was covering the 2019 to 2022 period, um, which unfortunately and kind of unsurprisingly shows that England is still quite far off its longer term targets. Interestingly, this news came at a time that campaigners were actually expecting an update on the ecological and chemical status of our water bodies. The last one was published in 2019, um, and this data is used as part of the Water Framework Directive, a retained EU law, you mm. know, binding us to, to 
commitments on water quality. For now. Um, For now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I saw this this Guardian story, which, you know, so people were rather, really rather shocked um, that chemicals and groundwater you know, weren't tested this time around and wouldn't be for another two years. Yes, that's right. Um, the government doesn't have a legal requirement to publish an update, a full update on the Water Framework Directive indicators until 2025. But before 2016, I believe the government were publishing this information almost on an annual basis. Um, and there was an understanding from stakeholders at the last meeting that this data would be published every three years. Mm. Um, so going into the the figures then, I guess, as much as we can. Um, a detailed analysis carried out by the Wildlife Trust and seen by ENDS showed that 14% of these rivers in the partial data set met good ecological status mm-hmm. um, as per the Water Framework Directive's requirements. Um, and, you know, there's a bit of a sense of deja vu here because um, that's the same result as in 2019 um, and 2016. So what does this all mean because there's lots of data and there's lots of fury and lots of emotion but what what do we naturally know yeah this is you've touched on like quite a good point about this data because there's also a lot of confusion as it's just a partial data set it's difficult to meaningfully compare it with earlier figures to see where there's been an improvement or a decline um yet we know that the numbers are not on track that's one thing we can say so the government's objective for 2027 is to have 2,662 water bodies achieve good ecological status. But this data set shows that only 587 water bodies achieve the status in that update. Um, The partial data set includes results for around 4,000 water bodies, but DEFRA said there's around 4,600 bodies um, in the target. So, you know, we're missing... um, data Mm. we're missing an assessment as you said of the groundwater and chemical condition of waterways despite all water bodies failing on this metric in 2019 i mean the main reason that they failed is because of chemicals such as heavy metals that um, are lumped together in a group known as ubiquitous persistent biocumulative toxic pollutants very catchy (laughs) yes (laughs) the government has said will take until at least 2063 to break down anyway but you know if every year we're not checking that figure or you know we don't check this regularly there could be more chemicals that are added that keep kicking this target further down the line so I think you know what we can glean from what was published is we're not on track and we don't quite know exactly how off track we are good okay (laughs) (laughs) Um, was well, it interesting what you said there about the chemicals being the thing often that that kind of makes rivers fail? Because that is, I remember the former EA chief often talking about this and kind of hitting out of the water framework directive saying, you know, it's not actually as bad as everyone thinks it is. It's just we fail, you need to fail on one thing and the river will fail on all on all fronts and will be given a poor, you know, a poor, poor rating. Um, but these 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 chemicals are really very important, aren't they? Mm, they are. So is there anywhere that listeners could go to see the official figures that DEFRA has published and, you know, take a look for themselves? I wish there was, um, but at the moment, the government dashboards don't seem to have been updated. 
Um, and th this is, you know, again, part of the problem because people can't access this data in a way that's readily available to, to those that don't have time to go through a giant spreadsheet mm. that might even be too big to download for their computers, as we discovered here at ENDS. <laughs> wow. Um, or go through each separate catchment and get the data from that and compile it into a giant spreadsheet, which is what Ali Morse at the Wildlife Trust thankfully did, as we were then able to, to analyze this too. So mm. yes, at the moment, you know, you can access our analysis at the ENDS report. So what, what do green groups say about this all? A lot of the fury has come from them, right? Yes, it has. Um, I mentioned Ali Morse earlier, who's a water policy manager at the Wildlife Trusts, um, who went through all of this data and she said the lack of digestible information provided to the public is concerning um, and greater emphasis should be placed on the distribution and effective communication of data which impacts so many people and this was reiterated by Richard Benwell of the Wildlife and Countryside Link who said you know the wider message for all political parties is their credibility on river pollution will rest on ambitious steps to reduce farming pollution, bigger budgets for bolder actions will be needed quickly. So it's sort of a message of let's give people the data and let's make the changes really. Yeah, just transparency, transparency, transparency. And what, what's DEFRA said about it all? Um, DEFRA has said the Environment Agency of just this month published another set of sampling results and the Water Framework Directive going further than legal requirements. We are delivering on our plan for water with tighter regulation, tougher enforcement and more investment to improve water bodies across the country. Okay, that's it. Our thanks to James Ajapong Parsons for producing this week's episode of the Eco Chamber, as well as to all of you listeners. This podcast would not be possible without those who subscribe to ENDS Report, whose readerships ensure that important investigative journalism about the UK's natural environment actually takes place. We'd really love to hear from you with your thoughts, views and opinions, and you can reach us by emailing ecochamber at haymarket.com or on socials using the hashtag ecochamber. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and maybe even share it with a friend. Uh, and until the next time, goodbye. <laughs>